Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What's so incredible about his career is that it's a constellation of greatness, really. He always seems to be in the right place at the right time. And you can't always say that there's a causal relationship there. I mean, there obviously is, but there's clearly a correlation. The world of F1 had a shock on Friday morning when publication Autosport released an article detailing a technical reshuffle at Mercedes, with Chief Technical Officer James Allison returning to his previous role as Technical Director in a job swap with Mike Elliott. In our episode last week, Craig Scarborough had spoken of his belief that a change at Brackley was on the cards in the coming months, but the speed in which things have taken shape took us all by surprise. So with Allison back in a major design role, we thought now was the perfect time to dedicate an entire episode to Allison's amazing cars and innovations with a view to helping us understand the man now at the helm of car design at Mercedes even better. For long-time Mercedes and F1 fans, this will be a chance to relive some of F1's most impressive technical feats and vehicles. And yes, we'll be talking about the iconic W11. And for those of you a little newer to F1, we hope we'll teach you a little bit more about why Allison is so highly regarded in the sport. And my name's Balf Baines, and this is a Silver Arrows podcast with a James Allison special. And who better to talk about James Allison than friend of the Silver Arrows podcast and F1 tech expert, Bryson Sullivan. Bryson, firstly, thank you so much again for coming on. And secondly, is it safe to say that James is one of your engineering heroes? Well, thank you for having me back on, guys. I'm very glad to be here. Of course, I always cringe at the title of tech expert. I'm a tech enthusiast. I'm someone who has a background in engineering and training in it, but I'm learning as much as anyone else as we go along, and I just enjoy talking about it. It is true that that James is one of my uh, engineering heroes, not only because of his incredible you know career and the correlation of his presence in a team and their level of success, but also in his 
inability to hide his enthusiasm for Formula One and his ability to convey complex topics articulately and lucidly in a way that people can understand. And that is a totally separate talent in its own right. I think everyone in the world understands the concept of a Formula One car, right? It has four wheels, an engine, it generates downforce, but very few people understand the violent reality of the performance of these cars. And James does. And he works to inspire and awe for that performance in other people that I think is a really unique talent. And so it's just one of the reasons why I have so much respect for him. I think it's fair to say, and I'm going to say this on record here on the Silver Arrows podcast, but I think he's the most likable, most knowledgeable guy in Formula One. People may disagree with me, and that's fine, but that's that's what I'm going to say, and that's what I'm staying on record. We will talk about James's sort of career uh, in a second, but Bryson, I just wanted to ask you what brought about the change at Mercedes, and and why now? Because we've had people on this podcast before thinking and saying that this change could happen in a few months, but it happened a few days ago. So let's just start off by saying that. Mike Elliott is an extraordinarily talented engineer. He's been with Mercedes from the very beginning of their rebuilding phase. You know, when Lewis Hamilton came, he was there working in aerodynamics. And it isn't ever one person that's responsible for the entirety of a car. One person didn't necessarily break the machine that we know as Mercedes, and one person can't necessarily fix it. By the same token, We've seen over the first three races a gradual improvement in the pace of the W14. Some of that's probably track-specific, but some of it is also probably related to set up and understanding the car better. But if the car is all-conquering tomorrow, all of that credit can't fall on James Allison, right? And, and by the same token, we can't blame Mike Elliott for everything that happened you know, prior to his, um, his departure. Uh, so I, I think the first thing I wanted to, to say to sort of orient ourselves is that it is a team effort. Everyone is involved to a, a greater or lesser degree. This change is happening not so much because we're trying to blame one individual and make sure that they feel the wrath of the, of the fans and <laughs> and the team. It's more so a realignment of individual skill sets. It, it seems to be, and again, some part of this may be PR spin, but I, I think some of it is actually quite genuine uh, speaking to the reporters who broke the story. But it seems that Mike Elliott himself, in his experience of working for the past you know, two, two years, right, roughly, uh, James left the team in mid-April of uh, 2021 uh, as, technical, as technical director. But it seems like Mike himself believes that his skill set is better suited to working in this uh, promotional role as chief chief technical officer and that James might be better suited to working as the technical director or something he has a lot of experience in. And as I said, this is a very unique skill set. What I would say is for those who maybe don't know, when you have some of the most brilliant engineering minds in the room, all of them trying to solve a problem, it's a bit like herding cats. To be clear, everyone has a brilliant <laughs> idea. And sometimes the most valuable thing that you can do in that situation isn't solve a differential equation. It's to get people on the same page and persuade them to go in one direction. That's something that James is incredibly talented at. Why is this happening now as opposed to some other time? The reason for that is actually because 
or in my position, my perception is that James is actually positioning himself to prepare for 2024. There's very little that one person can do to radically turn around a team on a dime in a, in a current year. But if you were to ask yourself, when do the first inclinations, when do the first advanced concepts work happen for the next car, for, for the next year's car? And the truth is it's already happening. It already has been happening. And if the team is going to actually mount a competitive challenge before 2026, it really is all hands on deck. And I think James is definitely one of the people who can be the best fit for that role. And I think Mike Elliott in his position is also essential to the success of the team. But right now we're just trying to align skill sets with positions. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Bryson, saying this is a, a team effort. F1 novices just think there's two drivers and a couple of people in the factory. It's not. There's thousands of people that work at Brackley and Bricksworth to, to get these cars on, onto track. So let's focus on, on James. We were talking uh, offline, Bryson, and I couldn't believe it when you said it, but he was at Renault and then he rejoined Renault. Then he was at Ferrari and then he's had his this career that's just spanned so many teams. So Bryson just wanted to talk to us about those sort of careers and those moves that he made throughout his Formula One and motorsport career. What's so incredible about his career is that it is it is a constellation of greatness, really. He always seems to be in the right place at the right time. And you can't always say that there's a causal relationship there. I mean, there, there obviously is, but there's clearly a correlation. Um, he graduated from Cambridge in 1991, I believe, and then was hired by Benetton. I'm going to refer to Benetton as Team Enstone because it, it has many guys over the years. Um, but but joined uh, Benetton in 1991 as a junior aerodynamic engineer. And his background is in aerospace, is in, in aerodynamics and aerospace engineering. His father was a pilot in the Royal Air Force. He has a, a great affinity for aircraft, as, as I do. Um, but his background was in, it was in aerodynamics. And he was then poached by uh, LaRousse, a team that many people don't know because they weren't highly successful. Uh, and they folded after a few years. But at some point, he was actually the head of aerodynamics at that, at that team. It was located in, uh, in Bicester. Um, and then he went back to Team Manstone, still known as Benetton, in 1994. As we all remember, 1994, Benetton is Michael Schumacher's first championship year. So that's already one you know, coincidence of being in the right place at the right time. I'm not sure how much of that car he had his influence on, but he was there at the appropriate time. He stayed there and eventually became the head of aerodynamic design and then the head of aerodynamics um, at 1997. And then when he got the itchy feet, as you might say, uh, he moved to uh, Maranello and worked for Ferrari starting in, in 1999. And this is probably one of the greatest eras of domination in Formula One that we've seen from 2000 to you know 2004 period with Michael Schumacher's championships and, and Ferrari's championships. And he was much more in, involved uh, in the, a higher level role there, I would say, than in, than in some of the other places. Um, he started off, I think, as a, a trackside aerodynamics engineer. And when he was asked about that experience, the shift from going from uh, a factory-based existence to a trackside existence is a total inversion of perception about the rush and the, the rhythm of a race weekend. You feel it far more intensely when you're at the track than when you're in other places. Um, but he was there for that run. 
And in 2005, went back to Team Endstone, which was then known as a Renault F1, and eventually became technical director there. And from that point forward in his career, he's been doing mostly technical director work as opposed to aerodynamic design. In fact, in his excellent Beyond the Grid interview by F1, he was famously asked, how much designing does he actually do these days? And he said, precisely none. He does precisely no design work right now. It's in a very different tact to what Adrian Newey does. But he joined uh, Mercedes in, in 2017 um, to become the technical director there. And in each of these positions, he is doing work that, again, perhaps some other person could do slightly differently or in different contexts. But there seems to just be this ability for him to rally the troops and organize them in a, in a one direction and maximize the output that they're able to produce and also to watch out for some of the pitfalls and what he calls man traps that teams can fall into on a technical side. And to do that requires, it requires a person to be a bit of a renaissance man. Yes, he started in aerodynamics and, and has a lot of experience there, but he has acquired knowledge about electrical systems, vehicle dynamics, chassis, tires, everything, and an ability to see how all those things can work together and how they might fail is kind of one of the most critical things in the roles of a technical director. So he's had a, a, a storied career, and we look forward to having him come back to Mercedes. But I just want to be clear, one person can't save any team because one person didn't break the team. Um, but he is a very good person to have in your corner if you're looking to find your way forward. I, I love to know, Bryson, that what the difference is between when he started in 1991 with his role and with the technology and with the cars to what it's like now in, in 2023. It must be such a, a massive difference within those years. <laughs> yeah, he, he, you know, he's been in Formula 1 for over 30 years. And in my understanding, if you ask him what's the biggest difference, it's not so much the cars or it's not so much the technology of the cars themselves. One of the biggest differences is it's been a huge shift from being a mostly empirical study of aerodynamics and car design to a far more scientific one, a far more rational exercise. Instead of developing a shape that you think makes sense and then testing on the track and saying, well, this is good, this isn't, you can actually have a, a much better understanding of the governing equations, of the the equations of motion, you know, the relevant forces, and you have a, a better understanding of the physics now than we ever really had before. So you can test far more geometries, far more creative things as time goes on. But it is empirical still because some of these systems are incredibly difficult to, to, to model. We don't even model some of them. I say we, I'm not in there, but I read about these things. They don't even model some of them. They use uh, AI machine learning to do pattern recognition in some systems. But it, it's far less empirical now than it was uh, then. And there are far fewer gains to have. You don't have these massive gains in one big update. So he has been around for a very long time, and I'm, I would be excited to one day ask him what he thinks about what's, uh, what's changed. Yeah, I'd love to ask. I'd also like to, I think, work, with, work for him. I think that would be an incredible thing to have. And uh, Bryson, you've got a story, haven't you, about working for James Allison? Yes, just to be clear, I've never worked for James Allison. Uh, through the magic of the internet, I've actually been able to contact and talk to people who have worked for him, um, who shall remain nameless. But, you know, to a man and, and woman, everyone who describes working with him describes him as being incredibly articulate, 
as being incredibly passionate about racing and motorsports and being very easy to approach as, as, a, as a senior person in the company. And the example given to me by this person when he was working for the team was that there was a time when the FAA had asked teams about proposals for new qualifying formats. They were looking for each team to give a submission for what their qualifying format should be for their, their preference. And there's an advanced concepts group, you know, there's James Allison, there's uh, James Valls, there's all kinds of people, all Locasso was probably there at the time as well. And this person, uh, who's a junior engineer, had an idea that he thought was pretty good. And James Allison's door was open. And he went to James and gave him his proposition for what this qualifying format should be and, and his reasons for why it should be that. And instead of telling him off and saying, I'm the senior person or just stealing the idea and not saying where it came from, he took that idea in hand, spoke it over with the other people on the team, and eventually a modified or polished version of that proposal was sent to the FIA as their official submission for what they would prefer the qualifying format to be. So it's just an example of someone who is not blinded by ego, despite having an incredible career, and is open to the the prospect of the right answer coming from unexpected places. That's something that everyone doesn't necessarily have. And as I said, it could be very easy to fall into the man traps of the engineering design space if you're not open to solutions from unexpected places. So that's just one example of uh, the positive experience that people seem to have had with James. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, and, and that's sign of a of a good leader having your door open, being open to to suggestions. Bryson, they, they, at Renault, there was a forward facing exhaust. You were telling me in uh, two two thousand and eleven, which <laughs> blows my mind that it, we had it just a, a dec- just over a decade ago. Yeah, when I tell people about this, they almost don't believe me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't believe you. I didn't believe you. <laughs> so the the car, you know, Team Enstone was known as as Lotus F1 at the time. I think this was actually their first year being known as as Lotus. And this was just after the time when exhaust blown diffusers were being partially banned. You're no longer allowed to direct the exhaust gases 
directly into the diffuser, but you could still blow those gases over the top of the diffuser. It's not quite as effective, but it still kind of works. And this got the creative gears turning of many teams. And their idea was, okay, well, we know that the downforce of the floor increases with the mass flow rate. What if instead of blowing air, blowing the exhaust gases over the top of the diffuser, let's just go to the front lip of the diffuser or the front lip of the floor rather, and have the airflow wrap around the leading edge of the floor and get sucked underneath the, the under part of the floor. Very interesting idea. Increase the mass flow rate, increase the downforce. It seems like a very plausible thing. Um, it turns out it didn't really work. <laughs> um, it didn't work as, as intended. And the team had a, a major design review trying to figure out if they should abandon the concept before the end of the 2011 season. And they decided to stick with it because it was too much work to, to, to get it out of the way. There are so many mechanical changes they had to make to introduce that system that ultimately didn't work. But I, I mentioned that example because it's an example of something that sounds brilliant on paper, that seems like it should work, that you do all of the, the effort to try to make work, but in practice doesn't work. It, there are parallels to that design as there are to, you know, let's say zero pod, you know, concept is still not quite right. It's more to the concept than the side pods, but you kind of get the the gist of the gist of what I'm saying. And so it's an example of uh, someone who is extremely talented, extremely you know technically plugged in, who has who was involved with. I'm not going to say he came up with that idea, but he was involved with um, a very critical idea. And it ultimately did not work. It could happen to anyone, as you say, as we were talking about Mike Elliott. So what's interesting to me about that is not only did they not sit on their hands and sulk for three years after that, they abandoned that exhaust system for the next year. And the very next year, 2012, was the year in which Kimi Raikkonen, driving for the team, won the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. You know, the, the very famous, leave me alone, I know what I'm doing. That season was the immediate following season of this four-facing exhaust idea, this sort of fiasco. So it, it just goes to show that fluctuations in form come and go in Formula One. All teams go through them. It's going to be a bit harder to do certain things now with the cost cap, but it, it demonstrates that everyone is human, but also that everyone can... Uh, turn things around if you give them the right time and opportunity. Uh, innovation that I wanted to, to mention was the DAS system on the on the one of my favorite cars, the W11 in, in twenty twenty. It had that iconic black livery, which I absolutely love, and I'm glad they brought it back for, for twenty twenty three. But why was the W11 so iconic in the in the Formula One space? What's amazing about the W11 is that it was built and constructed to fight a car that doesn't exist. And what I mean by that is 2019 was, was defined by Ferrari and their incredible top speed, and their incredible power. And at the moment when Mercedes saw this pace that Ferrari had, they barely beat them essentially in the early parts of, of uh, 2019. They knew as they were developing their car for the next season, they'd have to increase the level of performance significantly. They could have taken the design base of, of the W10 and just kept you know, incrementing on that and trying to keep make that faster. But because of how fast Ferrari was and how scared of Ferrari Mercedes was, they took some extreme risks in the W11 with the rear suspension, with the design of it, with the implementation of DAS, which I'll talk about in a second. All of these things are things that you would normally not do if you thought that you had an enemy that you could keep under control or a rival you could you could beat. 
they believed that if they didn't build something spectacular, they were going to be overtaken. Now, as it happens, Ferrari was using an illegal engine. <laughs> and, and that is why I say that the W11 was built to beat a car that doesn't exist. They were, the W11 was built to beat a car that had that same illegal Ferrari engine. And when that engine became you know, known as not being legal and Ferrari built a car that had way too much drag for the power available because it was no longer you know, legal to have the old engine, uh, they, they had unlocked an incredible amount of performance at, at Mercedes. And so the, the one of the main, the main radical shift, I would say, beyond DAS uh, with the W11 was the lower, lower wishbones of the rear suspension and the way those are connected to the chassis itself and the, uh, the gearbox and how they also connect to the uprights of the, of the, of the wheels. Um, but essentially, it's mostly about optimizing aero, minimizing weight, sucking in the side pods as much as possible. In the old formula, when we had barge boards that moved the front wheel wake very far outboard, there was a huge positive reinforcement loop of shrinking the side pods more and more and more and getting performance from that. It's one of the reasons why we were kind of sucked into the zero pod idea, um, but it doesn't quite work without, without barge boards anymore. So essentially, uh, though the side pods area and the rear suspension are two, two of the really big things, but talking about DAS itself, believe it or not, the DAS system was actually intended to go in the car in 2019 initially. And the reason why it didn't was because they brought this idea to the FIA. And when the FIA looked over it and begrudgingly agreed that it was uh, legal within the rules, the one thing they didn't like was that the second axis for the steering wasn't a push-pull mechanism. It was a lever that was attached to the, the steering wheel. And the FIA thought that was an unsafe condition. And so they had to go back and say, listen, Mercedes, you can use this dual axis steering, but you're going to have to move the entire steering wheel forward and backwards. And I imagine the FAA thought that that was an impossible task, that they wouldn't actually do it. Um, but uh, James Allison, even though he is you know, credited with being the technical director during that period, the person who's actually the, the architect of that system and who's the one who's actually implemented it uh, is chief designer John Owen. Uh, and John Owen was the one who detailed all the mechanical design and worked out how to make it work. And the tricky thing that people don't realize about DAS, and just to be clear, for people who don't know, DAS is a system where when the driver pulled or pushed the steering wheel forward or backwards, it would change the toe angle of the steering wheel, of the front wheels. And this had a very beneficial effect for being able to dramatically increase the rate of increasing front tire temperature on warm-up laps and um, starting and stopping procedures and, and things like this. But that particular system it's heavy. It's actually heavier than people realize. And the only way they're able to actually incorporate it into the W11 was to have extremely aggressive weight targets on every other part of the car. So it's not just a simple question of, well, can we do this or is it going to help us? You have to prove that it's going to be substantially beneficial. You have to prove that it is extremely robust and you have to prove that there are no, no compromises in any sense of driver normal car operation. It cannot be the case that I, I would be able to drive the car normally, but we have this dual axis steering. You have to prove that it actually is, is working. It's only an addition. It's not a hindrance to the driver. So that actually was an extremely beneficial part of the W11. People think that maybe it was like a 10th or two tenths or something like that. 
But the way it, it manifests itself in a race weekend is much more important than just a single lap time uh, comparison. It, there's a lot of performance to ride from it. And, uh, you know, John Owen was the person who really designed it in, in detail. Uh, but, but James Allison was a big part of that as well. With last week's change at the executive level at Mercedes, Bryson, do you think it will affect Mike Elliott? I know you spoke uh, at length earlier on this podcast, but do you think it will affect Mike Elliott? And how do you think those conversations went with, with Toto, with Mike Elliott, with James Allison w- within the team? You know, we, we don't have access to the internal communication in the team. Uh, we have official statements about who is doing what and when and who said this. It will always be possible for someone to say, of this is just PR spin from the team. They simply are putting a face on removing someone who was uh, at the helm when the team seemed to go in a bad direction. Uh, I I suspect that what they actually said is pretty close to the truth, though, in terms of um, what what individuals' um, talents are, uh, evident talents are, and where they might be best suited. I have no problem with Mike Elliott uh, going to the chief technical officer role and that that actually might be better for him if there was a situation where there really was a desire to completely clean house in their leadership structure, you would have had a McLaren-esque situation where James Key was removed from his role as technical director and was not replaced by one person, but an entire organization of people underneath him. And he didn't go to some other point location in the, in the company, as far as I can tell. So that's not what Mercedes chose to do, although they are kind of in a similar situation of seemingly going down the, the wrong path in the, in the new technical era. But I, I don't think that this is a, a negative in any way. I think that it takes a lot of uh, introspection and courage to recognize that you are in a position that might not be you might not be best suited for, and I also think that it takes a lot of courage for for James to come back uh, into his position, because as you may or may not know, when he left his position, he did not do so because he was sort of pushed on. He did so almost for altruistic reasons. He's described being a technical director as being some of the most satisfying and, and thrilling work of his entire life, but he recognizes that there are only 10 technical directors in Formula One, and every year that he stayed as technical director, he took a year away from someone else from enjoying that own that same uh, pleasure that, that he got from being a technical director, and in his mind, he did feel like he didn't need to take that away from them necessarily. Again, I'm saying this based on his interview given to F1, not my own perception of what he's feeling, but what he said about the situation himself. And so moving into that chief technical officer role was an opportunity to give other people a chance to be able to to try their hand at this job that he enjoyed so much. The challenge is in the exact moment that he left, the transition from 2021 to 2022 was a, a position that required a unique degree of agility in design and in conceptual analysis in philosophy. This is a shift to a totally new regulation set. The way that downforce is created is different. The way you design the car is different. Everything about it is different. There's, there's no opportunity for carryover from previous understanding to automatically produce lap time in, in the new formula. And so... Well, I understand that might be a, a natural break point for someone to end their time and to give someone else a chance. As it happens, some of those same pitfalls and, and man traps um, that maybe James could have seen 
uh, were left for someone else to see. It seems like there were a slew of issues that sort of culminated together and to take the team in the right direction, in the wrong direction at the time. So it, it, again, this is not something that I think is dramatic or or difficult or or sad in any way. I think it's just a, a realignment of of talent. And I think James Allen sort of probably say himself that he is only one person. He does not feel like he can change an entire team. But I suspect that he's one of the best people to have in that position at this time of Mercedes. And if he's willing to do the job, I'm sure they're more than happy to have him. So, Bryson, we know James is going to be busy with it with the Mercedes uh, F1 team. Is there any other projects that is happening in the background that you can tell us about? Uh, there is one. I'm not sure that it's a new project, but it is something that was going on probably during James's watch. It is known somewhat ominously by the name Dark Star. <laughs> Project Darkstar, um, which sounds um, rather extreme, but really what it has to do with is the use of additive manufacturing to create heat exchangers. And for those who don't know, additive manufacturing is essentially like 3D printing, but of metals and devices that can experience strong loads and things that you wouldn't normally be able to do and printed in geometries that you wouldn't normally be able to do. And where this heat exchanger technology is being used is actually to do uh, with intercoolers. And for, again, for those who don't know, we are in the V6 turbo hybrid era. You know, there's a turbo in there. Um, the turbocharger runs off the exhaust gases. It compresses the air, increases the density. Uh, but by that very process, it heats up to a high temperature. So if you can cool that temperature to a lower temperature, it increases the density further and gives you more power. Um, these extreme heat exchanger technologies help to maximize the efficiency of that process. And arguably, they made possible some of the extreme designs that we've seen in the past couple of years from our cities, i.e. zero pod design, they potentially allow them to use significantly lower mass flow rate for their cooling system than other teams would have to for the same heat load. And those technologies are emerging. Uh, I think they're still working, but it's something that Mercedes has been able to take advantage of under James Allison's uh, leadership. Bryce, I'm going to be completely honest here and say, I don't want you to leave. I think we should do a, a complete marathon of just me and you speak, and I could speak to you for ages. But the, the last question I want to ask you, Bryson, is what do you think the future holds for, for James Allison? It, it's interesting. I mean, one of the questions that I had at the beginning of this season was what is that new magic and key thing that everyone's going to focus on this season? You know, last season, it seemed to be, you know, porpoising, just eliminating the porpoising problem and trying to figure out how to get rid of it. Now that teams, by and large, seem to have gotten rid of it, although one team seemed to still have it a little bit in Australia, which was Alfa Romeo, um, it, it seems like there's a lot more focus on suspension design currently. And if you go back and look at a different uh, organizational structure as they have at Red Bull, and you people have interviewed you know uh, Adrian Newey to ask him what did he actually design in the 2022 and post regulations. And the one thing that he definitely designed was the front and rear suspension. And that didn't seem like a huge question at the time, but now we know that's actually one of the most critical factors in these ground effect cars. Yes, aerodynamics is the most critical factor in car performance currently, but given that we've lost many of the suspension tricks that we had previously, you know, front and rear interconnected suspension frick, we've also lost inerters and gas springs and all kinds of fun things. Now running regular mechanical suspension 
and being able to get the car as low as possible and have as stable a platform as possible is the number one thing that you need to be able to actually extract the maximum out of the ground effect cars. And as we know from this time last year, Mercedes was having a hell of a time trying to get their car to ride the bumps of, of Baku and not porpoise in a way that would uh, injure their drivers. And so it's becoming more and more clear that suspension is going to be a critical factor. And so when we talk about what the next steps are, what James is going to be involved in, it really is, this year is, is part of the question, but a bigger part of it is what's happening the next year. What is How is Mercedes going to return uh, to the competitive fight? A big part of that's going to end up being about the suspension. It's going to end up being about different side pod designs, probably. And it's also going to be uh, about having a different ride height philosophy. If you ask people what are one of the reasons why Mercedes was sort of so far off the pace uh, currently, they were kind of gun shy about porpoising. And so they optimized W14 to ride at a higher ride height than they did the W13 just to be able to avoid it. And it turns out that they can actually run the car significantly lower and still not have porpoising problems because of the floor changes for this this year. Um, so they're, they're going to be redesigning their floor. They're going to be redesigning their side pods. And they may be redesigning their suspension as well. Red Bull has significant anti-dive and anti-squat in their suspension. And I imagine other teams are sort of figuring out that that's a really important factor in these current cars. They're going to be trying to emulating it themselves going forward. So it's going to be very exciting. There's going to be pitfalls and uh, man traps there as well. Uh, but hopefully James can help to find some of them and steer the team in the right direction. Hopefully he can navigate his way uh, around those man traps. Uh, Bryson, thank you so much, as always. Uh, for coming on to the Silver Arrows podcast. The door is always open for you to come back. Thanks for having me. And that's about it for this week. As always, a massive thank you to Bryson for joining us. There's a link to his social media and many of the articles and links he referred to in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening. Do remember to follow us on Twitter at MercF1Pod and hit that follow button in your podcast app. Last week's episode was one of our most popular yet, which wouldn't be possible without your help getting the word out to those who might be interested. So if you're enjoying these episodes and are feeling extra kind, please drop us a review and share it with your friends. In the meantime, we'll see you after Baku. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.